At 11FS, we do love making a podcast or two, and this isn't our only one. If you haven't checked our sister podcast, Insure Tech Insider, then hop to it because we've published some of our best ever episodes in the past few months uh, from the future of work, the biggest insure tech news. There's a topic in there for anyone who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head to ii.11fs.com. Or to start listening, just search for Insure Tech Insider on your favorite podcast client. Let's start the show. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you that FinCEN leak, Tink continues its path to European domination, and Nationwide claps back against racism. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 465 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Ross Gallagher. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, sir. Very well. It's going to be a good show. I can tell. Good to have you back, and uh, I'm excited. Like listeners, you can't see this, but Ross has a very red background behind him, and I'm a little bit spooked out. So uh, if I sound thrown throughout this podcast, it's all Ross's fault. Apologies. <laughs> uh, as is now normal, of course, we are joined remotely by some incredible guests. Making a welcome return, we have Ollie Betts, who's the CEO and co-founder of OpenWorks. How you doing, Ollie? I'm great, thanks, Simon. Great to be here. Great to be back. No, thank you for being back and making a much welcomed return is the one and only Val Christensen, who's Director of Growth and Comms over at our friends in Oak North. How are you doing today, Val? Great. Great. Really glad to be here. Well, there's one story we had to kick off with this week. And my goodness, uh, that FinCEN file leak. Uh, this comes from BuzzFeed News uh, or just about anywhere that you were reading over the weekend. So what is it? The FinCEN files, uh, as they're so-called, are more than 2,500 documents, most of which uh, are files that are sent to the U.S. authorities between 2000 and 2017. These files are SARS, or Suspicious Activity Reports, when banks raise a concern about what one of their clients might be doing. So if a bank is concerned, they fill in one of these reports, and then it's sent to authorities. Now, it's important to note, they only send this when they're suspicious, but they don't have absolute proof. These files were leaked to BuzzFeed News and shared with a group of investigative journalists from around the world and distributed to more than 108 news organizations in 88 countries, including BBC's Panorama. FinCEN, of course, is the U.S. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, easy for me to say, and these other people at the U.S. Treasury who combat and fight financial crime. Uh, If you are planning to profit from a criminal enterprise, you need a way of laundering that money. And banks are, of course, supposed to make sure that they don't help clients launder money and move money around the world. By law, banks have to know who their customers are. In other words, KYC, know their customer. It's not enough to file the SARS alone and keep taking dirty money from clients. They have to do a lot more, like customer due diligence, enhanced due diligence, understand who the customer is, understand their source of funds, uh, understand is this person politically exposed, etc., etc. Of course, there have been previous leaks uh, that have highlighted criminal activity, such as the Panama Papers, but the FinCEN Papers are different because they're not just document from one or two companies. They come from a number of banks globally, and this is really, really powerful. So to get some context for this, uh, we spoke to Shane Rudell, who's founder and CEO of Alludicate. So over to Shane. Hi there, this is Shane Riedel. I'm the CEO of Elucidate. Uh, We're a technology company providing a regulated financial crime benchmark. And 
enabling financial institutions to use their data uh, to assess financial crime risk against an objective standard. Um, before doing this, I was uh, responsible for, for compliance for financial institutions at uh, Standard Chartered, and I started out in finance at Goldman. So today I'm here to talk briefly about uh, the FinCEN files. Three different takeaways from this uh, reporting. Number one, uh, the banks have, have in large part failed to effectively uh, manage financial crime risk. Number two, regulators have also done, you know, fa failed to manage financial crime risk. And, and three, our, our, my personal view, technology has failed to manage financial crime risk. So starting quickly with the banks, uh, what we see is that there's a lot of conflict within banks and banks really struggle to manage the, the, the inherent conflict between revenue and managing risk. And the fact that this risk is, is very manually and subjectively assessed contributes to that. Secondly, regulators, when they receive this data, they, they haven't used uh, that data set in a wholesale way uh, to, to really drive change. And really critically, they haven't provided feedback to the banks to enable them to benefit from the true positive, either to allow their people or indeed their machines to learn. And then lastly, technology. The technology that's utilized today is very tactical. It's, it's, it's halfway technology. Uh, and, and this doesn't provide a systemic solution to... Um, to manage financial crime risk. So the reporting uh, has, has received very mixed results, for sure. There are definitely dissenting voices, but overall it, it does represent a pretty significant um, set of reporting on what is a, a very unique and interesting data set. Thank you so much, Shane, for, for that overview. I think lots to unpack here uh, for, for, our, for our group. Uh, I don't know who wants to jump in first on this one, but you know, do we think that there's a, too much of a focus on naming and blaming? How do you think this has come across, Val? I mean, I think you know, it's interesting about the question on you know, technology failing. I mean, this potentially presents a really big opportunity for great tech companies, right? I mean, um, I think there was a, an article earlier this year which said obviously COVID-19 was going to create a bigger risk um, in terms of um, money laundering. And uh, I think that, and know your customer as well, just because banks would have to completely change their entire processes and things that they might have been doing for, for decades or potentially even centuries, and now those are all having to change. So it's quite interesting, um, you know, I think about reg tech companies who could actually end up being quite big winners here. Um, and it creates a big opportunity for them because obviously often as a, as a B2B company, your biggest competitor, competitor isn't necessarily another business that does something similar, but often you're competing with so many different priorities within a bank, so many different transformation projects, and there's obviously limited budget. So something like this could move that very much to the, the top of the agenda. Um, compliance is definitely you know, a need to have rather than nice to have. Banks should absolutely have it. But I think um, certainly to see recovery in their share prices, they're going to need to um, demonstrate that they are investing quite heavily in this and that it's not going to happen again. Um, I'd be interested to see what proportion of the 2,500 um, records that were sent, you know, obviously it was between 2000 and 2017. I'd be interested to see what proportion came before the financial crisis and after, because obviously post-financial crisis, there were a number of new uh, regulations that came into effect, um, not only to counter anti-money laundering and improve KYC, but also to hold senior execs more accountable. So things like the senior managers and certification regime. And perhaps things like that wouldn't, uh, you know, things like this wouldn't have necessarily gone uh, or been missed, um, you know, as much uh, post that period. So I've been interested to see the, the divide between um, that, that figure post and crisis. 
Indeed, of course. Um, after 2012, the Financial Action Task Force (FATF) came in with new guidance um, because there were, and that's when we saw some. Many listeners will remember the big fines that we saw um, a lot of banks getting uh, over the past sort of decade. Most of that, or a good chunk of that, was indeed around um, not having adequate anti-money laundering controls in place. And of course, anti-money laundering—it all sounds very technical, but pretty much anything you care about, you know, from from uh, a a global perspective can be prevented if if we could get this right. I mean, everything from modern slavery to human trafficking to some real horrible like uh, financing terror. This is what the banks are in a position to potentially try and prevent. And if that system's not working, that's that's deeply worrying. I mean, Ross, what are your thoughts when you looked at this story? Uh, I completely agree, Simon. With everything that you've just said, this is far from an academic issue. Um, you're right. This all sounds very technical, and I think you know. Maybe generally people won't take much uh, much of an interest in this, but actually everything about um, money laundering has terrible human consequences. So it's of the utmost importance that we get this right. I guess, you know, you said at the, the top of this one that there's there's a lot to unpack, and I completely agree. I think one of the first things we need to unpack is, is, is what actually is the story here. Um, you know, is it that banks were negligible in allowing these transactions to happen? I think a lot of the language particularly in some of the mainstream reporting, was actually quite accusatory. So Bank X allowed fraudsters to move millions. Um, uh, you know, or is the story actually that maybe, you know, going back to Val's point, many regulatory and compliance um, processes probably aren't up to scratch. I know we surfaced that quote from the BBC in our show notes calling out that the banks are required by law to stop um, transactions where they have evidence of wrongdoing. But, you know, I think it's important. I think you might have uh, sort of a nod to this in your opening gambit as well, Sai, that, there is a difference between having hard evidence and, of course, the burden of proof here will be quite high um, and simply reporting a, a suspicion, right? Indeed. And, and this is something that reporting a suspicion, one bank may not have the complete picture. And indeed, post-2008, we've seen, uh, in 2012 especially, the rise of the defensive SAR, the Defensive Suspicious Activity Report, where they're just raising them even if anything looks suspicious and they don't have the full and complete picture. And then law enforcement may or may not be following up. And I think this was Shane's point that um, there's a whole structural issue here across not just the uh, the banks, but the regulators and the technology sort of combined. And, and Oli, maybe we, hopefully this will trigger, as, as Valentina says, uh, a push towards RegTech, because how much longer can it be the case that banks go, oh, well, we have a process. Here's a picture of our process. Like, how effective is that process is, is always a question. I think that's been the, um, the thing that compliance teams have been able to do is point to the process rather than the effectiveness of it. Um, Oli, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of what people have said. I think it's interesting that maybe in this kind of more commercial, large corporate banking space, it feels like things are one step removed from the harm. So I was trying to think of kind of analogies in the consumer market, which I'm kind of more familiar with also as a user of that market. But, you know, nowadays, it's actually quite hard for me to move money around. I, you know, there is friction, positive friction there where I'm asked, who's this money going to? What's the transaction about? And a lot of those controls, you know, if my um, credit card stolen, it's pretty quickly frozen as a default. So the first default position is um, stop anything suspicious, anything that looks suspicious, stop things. Whereas it feels like in corporate land, we've still got this thing of if something suspicious happens, kind of report it to someone else who will then probably take a look at it and will then doesn't want to tip off um, any kind of fraud or anything like that. And then maybe we'll solve a problem and try and improve. Whereas in consumer, 
And retail banking, there's loads of controls, which is, I guess, because it's directly connected to consumer harm of someone's money being taken from them. The default position is let's stop, investigate, and then let the system and the money movement start again only once we know it's okay. Yeah, those systems also look and feel very different technically, I think, as well. Um, Valentina, you mentioned briefly that um, bank share prices, and and there's an example here I just want to bring to life before I, I throw it to you to kind of expand on, on some of these points. But um, there's a linked story where apparently HSBC moved Ponzi scheme millions despite a warning. Um, so they, the bank moved money through its US business to HSBC accounts in Hong Kong through 2013 and 14. HSBC says it's always met its legal duties on reporting such activity, I think, as we mentioned. The scam was a Ponzi scheme, a notorious type of investment racket that pays uh, existing stakeholders using money from new users. And of course, against that context, uh, HSBC shares have now dived to their lowest level since 1995. Um, I think a lot of the banks are at their lowest share price since the financial crisis, if not in some cases lower. You mentioned the share prices, Val. Do you think that this is just a bad news flash in the pan or there's something else going on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you're just as likely to get a negative headline, um, you know, if, you, if you're overly protective and overly cautious, right? I mean, we've, I mean, how many times even on this show have we talked about Monzo being criticized or Revolut because someone's had their account blocked, um, you know, because it, there was suspicious activity. And I think that was a story that ran throughout much of the summer. So there's a degree of, you know, being overly cautious and creating a bad customer experience there and then getting the negative publicity. <laughs> Equally, you can be, um, you know, in this case where you, you're, you know, you, you're conscious of not flagging up every single thing and blocking uh, accounts where you, you think, OK, there's not actually a massive issue here. And, and um, you know, as we heard in, in um, you know, the recording, there's a balance between revenue as well, because you've got to think about customers. And if you if you get it wrong that customer is very likely, very unlikely to, to stay with you uh, because of the hassle um, and the experience. So I think it's, you know, uh, the, the stock market is always a, a great way to see perception, but it also tends to move in a very, um, uh, a bit like a roller coaster. Um, and they don't tend to stay that way for very long. Um, I'd be, um, you know, HSBC is, is one of the largest banks in the world, I believe the largest in the UK. So, um, uh, and they're also too big to fail. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not someone to give uh, investment advice, but I think it would be. Um, I don't think this is is this is the lowest. Um, it's not the end of them yet. Maybe not. Maybe not indeed. Um, Ross, the last time I looked at um, sort of the the figures from the UN, uh, it was estimated that two trillion is laundered annually. Of that, we detect around two percent. Of that, we prevent around two percent of the two percent. This is an entirely inadequate global system that we've got according to the UN's own figures. Is there a need for real change here, and what can we be doing? Doing? What can banks be doing? It's remarkable, isn't it? Because um, it just points to the fact that there is just sort of almost an, an incomprehensible amount of criminality in the in the financial system, and, and, and that to me points at a system that's currently in place that obviously isn't fit for purpose. Um, the uh, the point I think that that you raised in your blog that you published in response to this side this week that I thought was so salient. Um, was the fact that regulators have tended to focus on the fact that a process exists um, and not actually how efficient that process is. I, I think going back to something that, that we've probably circled back to a couple of times, there are now more sophisticated reg tech solutions that can be applied directly to actually solving some of these problems. It's how we apply new technologies to solving 
new problems, not just throwing the same people and process at the same problems. Um, and I think I think this is big, right? This is going to um, lead to a big reaction. FinTech has already announced proposals to, to overhaul its its own AML programs. Although I suppose how quickly that process will move is probably another matter. But the response from regulators and also from financial institutions, I think, in terms of how they choose to interpret and implement regulation will be interesting. But it feels like we need to, banks need to get out on the front foot now, be more proactive rather than reactive um, and start to keep. It, it can't be like 2012 where we saw um, the answer was to spend a lot of money hiring a lot of people because that's clearly not fixed the issue. Um, and there are great reg techs. I mean, to name a few, and there are others available, Comply Advantage, Alloy, Hummingbird, uh, Hawk AI, Ciari Analytics. There are so many people in this space and, and fintechs. And of course, the incumbents. I mean, uh, Actimize from NASDAQ is, is well used by many, but is constantly being upgraded. There are lots of tools out there that can be used better. And if we start to focus on a effectiveness and the quality of the data rather than the existence of the process. Maybe we'll start to get somewhere. Um, Ollie, did you have any final thoughts on either this or the um, or the the piece around the bank share prices as well? I think, look, I think on the bank share prices, all you guys are spot on. They've, it sounds terrible and we shouldn't probably live in this type of world, but they've had bigger scandals and they've survived them and bounced back. Um, this is awful, but they have had worse. HSBC have had worse and they've bounced back. I'm Unfortunately, been in the market too long, a little bit sceptical, but, you know, it's, I hate to say it, but it's like a, not a bad year to bury some bad news. I suspect they'll be back and, um, you know, as people have said, they can't fail. And um, unfortunately, that's why I'm struggling a little bit to see, as you were saying, kind of what's the, um, this feels like the kind of um, the story that should cause people to change. I'm just not quite sure what the kind of drive is going to be. It feels like it, it needs to come from the regulator. Just as we said, there's so much to unpack and it's so complicated. Just where where's the where's that going to come from to drive the change? I often wonder if you know, sort of post um, pandemic, we talked about building back better. I wonder if post FinCEN files, banks can build back better a little bit in terms of of how they do this stuff. And um, you know, where's growth really coming from? Given the capital requirements on these large banks, given their fixed cost structure, given that you know we've been through a decade of branches closing, and that hasn't really seen a return to earnings growth. Like, what's the growth story for these organisations that's going to send the share price moving back in the right direction? What's the role of that? brand if there is less of a high street going forward there's some really big existential questions but Valentina I mean you're part of a business that's growing what are you seeing as key to growth if you're a bank in this age well I mean I'm coming at it from probably quite a biased perspective because obviously we're here from consider the source (laughs) yeah I mean uh, born out of the idea that um, you know the existing or the traditional high street way of doing things wasn't uh, wasn't right at least not um, specifically in terms of commercial lending which is what Oakmont does um, and, you know, what we're seeing right now in terms of growth is really being driven by the fact that most large banks are pretty reluctant to, to lend. Um, and if they are lending, it's it's really largely the government-backed loans, so C-bills, BBLs, and BL-bills. So right now we're seeing, I mean, for this month, for example, we've seen four times the lending volumes going to credit committee um, versus the same period last year. For the two months before that, we were seeing double the lending volumes. Um, and it was similar post-Brexit. In the six months post the Brexit vote, um, you know, we saw our loan book triple in size, um, not because we were taking on due risk and lending to businesses we wouldn't have lent to before, but really because the larger banks were retrenching. So from our perspective, the growth is really coming from 
lack of appetite, I guess, um, from other banks and uh, desire from businesses to get a loan quickly. And I wonder if both this lack of lending uh, appetite and also the approach to compliance speaks uh, are both symptoms of a broader challenge, Ross, around sort of being committee driven, uh, which is not wrong. You know, we still have credit committees in, in all tech driven businesses, but there's uh, a fundamental set of assumptions about how you do business that are changing in the market and people are able to address risk in new and, and different ways where the tech and the human are, are really working better together uh, do you think there's a there's a cultural shift maybe that that needs to come yeah i, I think there is and and i think that's what the likes of um valentina and oak north do so well but i think it's also really important to keep in mind the sort of macro context so i know we talked about you know in relation to the hsbc share price we talked about the ponzi scheme i wonder if that's not a little bit of a, a red herring i mean when you look at what's happened this year i mean yes hsbc have obviously struggled to address issues around money laundering but equally earlier this year, when we're talking about lending, they announced a seven-fold jump in reserves for uh, bad loans in response to the impact of COVID-19. They are much more politically exposed to the escalating tensions between the US and China um, than, than many of their peers. Um, so I think it's just important to remember that obviously these guys are, are acting, they're operating in an incredibly tough macroeconomic um environment but i think you're right i think that shift is going to come and i think it was a really nice point that you made about building back better and hopefully we do see that because they are so crucial to the global financial system they represent one of the biggest lenders and current account providers around the world uh, crucial to the global financial system and i know it's hard i've been inside a bank when these things happen it's really really hard and there's lots of people trying to do the right thing so you know shout out to everybody who's who's trying to make it work inside the banks you know, we offer this hopefully constructively uh, rather than as as a pure criticism because it's it's a hard place to be all right we're going to take a quick pause whilst we hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech, combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology. Only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. You can discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools that offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. Do you follow 11FS on LinkedIn? If you don't, you should. Give us a little stalk. We make all kinds of content over there that we don't want you to miss out on. We're starting not one, but two new live shows. On Tuesday, we're going to be digging into the biggest news stories. And on Thursdays, we'll be grilling some of the biggest experts in financial services on what they do for a living. So we're going to be peeling back the curtain of some of the jobs in the financial services industry. Maybe not all it is as appears. You'll have a chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show uh, by some of the best minds in the industry. This is your chance. Who do you want on the show? What do you want to ask? You can find out more by heading over to our 11FS LinkedIn page. Thanks, and on with the show. Alrighty, uh, the next story comes from Opfi, and this one is about Tink continuing their path to European domination uh, by acquiring OpenWorks account aggregation platform. Uh, so open banking platform Tink has made its third acquisition in 2020 through its purchase of OpenWorks uh, and their bank account aggregation platform. 
This acquisition will see Tink expand its UK connectivity into business account data, which will be available to all of their customers later this year. As part of the acquisition, OpenWorks will power its applications through Tink's platform, enabling the UK fintech to expand its services across European markets in early 2021. Of course, earlier in the year, Tink bought Spanish account aggregator Eurobits, uh, which processed over 50 million transactions. And uh, Tink also acquired fellow Swedish fintech Instantor, a credit decisioning firm that makes over 5 million credit decisions annually, further expanding Tink's product offering. My goodness, that was hard to read. So um, I'm glad I got through that. Um, we have somebody who knows a little bit about this acquisition, a little bit about OpenWorks. Uh, Ollie, do you want to talk us about what this means for you and what does it mean for Tink? Sure, yeah. Um, it's really exciting uh, for us, I guess, to, to be totally honest. Um, when me and Mittal, my co-founder, we sat down and sketched out the vision for OpenWorks, the, the aggregation layer connecting to banks was actually like a really thin layer in our solution stack. Our vision's always been that we want to use open banking as an enabler. Our expertise and passions in developing applications that are going to unlock value for end users and use consented and portable data just to improve people's everyday lives. And then what we found was aggregation was rapidly becoming uh, this huge kind of global arms race, frankly, just huge companies, huge investment going into it. And this thin layer on our diagram, suddenly a hugely competitive market. Uh, our own platform was huge in scale and we needed to put huge investment behind it to continue to compete. And really what we were looking for was a way that we could simplify our business and focus on what we really care about. Um, and so the acquisition enables us to do that. We can be 100% focused on um, really what we want to do, which is help everyone understand what they can afford um, we're going to talk, I think, a bit later in some of the other stories about the importance of understanding people's affordability. We think that's a huge challenge in financial services and something that um, we've got a great opportunity to, to help solve. The other thing it helps us do, as you said, is it helps us expand in Europe on back of uh, the Tink Rails, which are already spread well, well throughout Europe. Um, uh, and I, I don't actually believe anyone can win in all the layers of open banking. I think you really have to pick one. Um, and really be um, focused on that, which is why this works so well for us. And for Tink, kind of, I would say this, but they've got hold of um, a great platform capability in the UK. It was a bit of a gap for them. Uh, another important thing that we spent a lot of time with them on, it, it really moves them into the small business space as well. We were calling the vast majority of the API calls to small business accounts was from OpenWorks uh, with clients like Xero. So it's a big opportunity for them to expand in that respect. Um, and really kind of they've got to keep up with the plaid and the true layers of the world. So I think um, their focus definitely is a lot more in Europe and the UK was a bit of a gap. So it was a, a good fit for both organizations. I love that rationale. It's really logical. But as you say, you sort of the, the plaids, the true layers, the Yapalis, this is a really competitive market, especially at that infrastructure level. And this uh, aggregation is one thing as a platform, but what you can do with aggregation once you've got that data for customers is where you can really start to add a lot of value. So um, that's hugely insightful. Um, Ross, what, what did you think when you saw this? Um, what, what are your immediate thoughts? Well, it's really interesting, actually, because I think Ollie's kind of perfectly summed up my uh, immediate thoughts already. Um, firstly, Ollie, congratulations. Um, I, I agree. I think it's incredibly exciting. And I think um, it is sort of win, win, win. I think there's um, huge advantages, obviously, for yourselves and for Tink in terms of opening up um, different markets. But, you know, to, to the point you made as well, I think there's also a huge, uh, a huge win here for consumers and, 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 and huge potential here, I think, again, to, to take this to the next level. 
Russ, it sounds like everything's huge. Um, huge. <laughs> I love the overuse of one adjective. I'm all for it. I'm here for you. Um, Val, you you wanted to add some points. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I guess mine's kind of taking it from a slightly different angle. I think um, it's, you know, one one acquisition is, is probably challenging enough. Um, three in the space of what's, you know, nine months is... Um, is pretty impressive. Um, you know, it's, it's hard enough making one acquisition work well just from a kind of a cultural fit and, um, you know, ensuring that uh, the, the tech's going to be speaking together, the team's going to be speaking together. Um, so I think, you know, more power to them. And obviously, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great time to be uh, going shopping. <laughs> um, and uh, I think, you know, Tink, I think they closed a 100, 100 million-ish round um, earlier this year in January. So, um, you know, they have the the, the capital to, to do it um, and you know potentially I mean if, if, if all three and if there's any more kind of in the pipeline acquisitions go well um, you know this would be an amazing case study really for other businesses you know in terms of, of turmoil sort of how do you do a an acquisition successfully and obviously how do you do multiple acquisitions successfully when there's uh, there's so much change happening um, internally but also externally as well. And I think Ollie will come on to this a little bit on the next story because we've got a live example. But before we get into it, I'd love your views in terms of what this means for open banking more generally, because I've seen surveys recently that people say, you know, it's failure to launch. Open banking hasn't really taken over. Um, you know, there's still a lot of doubt out there about it as a service. And I've been quite vocal in terms of you know, it's going to take a long time for it to really start to show value. Are we turning a corner or is there still so much more to do than has been done? I think it's a good point. I think... Um we are turning a corner. I mean, I, I've always been fairly vocal about saying I think it's successful if people don't really notice open banking's happening. It, it really is kind of an enabler to open up more um, uh, kind of personalized experience, more personal products, a better understanding of your money and those kind of benefits rather than you kind of knowing that you're sort of open banking on a Monday afternoon type of thing. I think um, there definitely is a corner been turned in terms of volume that's going through the the infrastructure now. There is. Um, we know kind of hundreds of millions of API calls, but there's now uh, millions of open and active open banking consents, i.e. people are continuing to refresh their consents and share this information through the um, the capability that exists, the infrastructure itself, end users are actually benefiting from it. So I think that's a big turning point. We're kind of starting to get scale in that respect. Um, mm-hmm. I think with the investment coming into the market, I think one of the other things with the Visa Plaid uh, kind of acquisition True layers funding, Tink's funding, Tink's acquisition kind of progress is in, in and around payments. What I've been really kind of interested in is it's always felt like one of the great uh, disruptive capabilities of open banking is what it can do in payments. And I think what we've started to see is payment volumes hugely increase. Um, some of the players like True Layer have, have put that down to, to impacts of lockdown and COVID, more digital payment transactions overall. Um, just driving up that usage of that capability. I think that's important that when you start to put the ability to um, help a consumer understand their finances more clearly and then help them move money more easily, it needs both of those things for it to really kind of get the flywheel going. So I think this is the starter, start of it. Yeah, it's it's really starting to get there with that payment side, isn't it, Ollie? And the PISP specialists as well, um, I think TrueLayer have and 
did did the proof of concept with um, HM Revenue and Customs around collecting payments. And then um, now there's an open bid where the government would actually be using that. For merchants, it potentially reduces their interchange fees, but also as they're staring at strong customer authentication, like e-commerce might not be as easy in Europe and with a card in two years' time. Um, so having this other thing that's actually quite a slick experience is, is quite, quite interesting and potentially lower costs for the merchant, potentially higher conversion. There's a bunch of interesting companies, specialists as well, popping up like Payvine, Payosu, all of these other spaces. So there's more companies being built and then there's, there's acquisitions. The circle of life continues. Um, but I want to get to the next story, Oli, because I, I think uh, one, of the, one of the best examples I've been using for a while is like what you can do with open banking. What's a little app called Kogo? And um, f- story from FinTech Times is NatWest is trialing a carbon footprint tracker for its own customers. Uh, NatWest customers can now sign up to participate in a pilot scheme with FinTech Kogo, which will give them access to a real-time carbon footprint tracker based on their spending habits. As soon as a customer connects their uh, bank account app to the app, uh, Kogo will automatically calculate their carbon footprint based on transactions, and this will update with every single spend, showing them their climate impact from the morning coffee to lights out. The bank has unveiled plans to offer a £100 thank you payment to its customers who participate in the Green Homes Grant Scheme, and the payment will help towards the cost of installing and upgrading climate-friendly home improvements. MoneySense, also NatWest's award-winning financial education program, has launched a new workshop for schools addressing climate change. To find out more, we spoke to Georgina Buckley, Chief Operating Officer at NatWest. Thanks very much for inviting me to speak today. I'm Georgina Buckley. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at NatWest Retail Bank. We're really excited about our new innovation in relation to helping our personal customers transition to a lower carbon life. We're doing this in partnership with a company called Kogo. It's the only open banking platform that's dedicated to driving ethical and sustainable consumption. The way it will work is that we're going to match real-time spend data against customers' chosen values to demonstrate their impact and make recommendations to help them change their behaviours. We work with leading experts and businesses in relation to carbon footprint methodology and keep evolving it as we get feedback from our customers. We're launching the first to market carbon footprint tracker and recommendation engine based on real-time personal spend data. That means we'll be able to give people advice on how they can improve their carbon footprint and help with their education around how their activities are increasing their carbon life. We're motivated to work with partners here at NatWest. It's a core tenant of our strategy and we're really excited to see how this goes and really excited to hear back from our customers. Thanks for the time and the profile today. Love to come back and talk to you about it once we've got the results of the initial trial. Thank you very much to Georgina. Uh, I'm really, really pleased to see this big bank doing something around carbon footprint. But what I couldn't figure out is why this isn't Kogo anyway. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this, but Kogo's been a nice little app that's been around for some time. You download the app, you connect your bank account to it, and it calculates your carbon footprint and then gives you things that you could choose to buy that would offset your carbon footprint. Um, and, and also, it gives you some insight into which of your purchases in a given month had the most carbon impact. So fantastic little app. Share out to those guys um but yeah i don't know if anybody else knows any more about what's going on here and or has other thoughts does anybody want to jump in on this val over to you yeah i mean i think it's it's great that it, there's a new partnership with with natwest because uh, obviously um you know they have a much broader reach than um Cobra does on its own 
I think it's also, I mean, I don't know how big sort of uh, energy efficient mortgages are here uh, in the UK versus in somewhere like the US, but I think it will get people thinking a lot more about that. So energy efficient mortgage basically where, um, you know, you get sort of, uh, I guess, credits uh, towards a home's energy efficiency in the mortgage. Um, so it's sort of also known as a, as a green mortgage. And um, that will get people thinking more about that, you know, upgrading your home and sort of making your home more energy efficient, whether it's through double glazing, whether it's through cavity wall insulation, you're very, it can be pretty expensive. So, uh, you know, putting £100 towards that, I think it's really, really great. And it will get people thinking more about this. It's obviously been something that I think a lot more people have been thinking about this year, especially because travel's obviously been, been pretty limited. Um, so people have been thinking a bit more about their carbon footprint and actually do I need to be taking as many flights a year um, you know whilst at the same time they are they are at home more so um, you know they're using more electricity and so on so I think people are thinking quite more consciously and it's very good timing and um, yeah just I think it's really good to be, to be setting an example. Yeah, good good for brands to be doing this. Absolutely. I, I fully agree with that. To to take your brand and to nail it to the to the carbon neutral and, and uh carbon positive ideals is is phenomenal. So good on them, everybody involved. Ollie, you want us to jump in here? Yeah, I I like I love it as well. I think it's great. Um I think it um it's important that kind of it doesn't stop here in terms of that identifying where people could potentially um buy something else instead of that to reduce the carbon footprint and have less carbon footprint i think from it's interesting i think from a fintech perspective i think this is a fintech opportunity because you can see how it's pretty extensible to be okay stop spending as much money on this because it's high carbon spend it on this it's low carbon plus the money i'll save you as well i can invest in ethical uh carbon neutral or carbon uh, negative initiatives um i think what's really interesting on the fintech versus should this be a bolt onto a bank for me is I think the only way banks become credible in this space is to go all in. Looks like NatWest are kind of on the cusp of that. But I mean, all in in terms of their supply chain needs to be ethical. They need to um, offer me, uh, if I put my savings with them, I need to know that's uh, invested in the right things, invested in um, protecting the planet or protecting the future. So I think that's really interesting. But I think, again, the fintech angle is a fintech I know in Spain called Mito or Mito. Um, and they're trying to sort of start and build all those blocks. Another key part of their their proposition, which I really like, is kind of a community-based, um, almost a sort of I'm saving the planet faster than you are, uh, kind of peer-to-peer-based uh, thing where they can get points and rewards on that respect. So I think anything in this area is really exciting. Um, so yeah, great to see this virtue signaling as a service. Um, right. Sounds like a, an interesting, uh, thing. but it works. Competition really, really works, and, and and good on everybody for doing that. Um, and Ross, what are your thoughts here? Well, firstly, I, I love the idea of um, sort, sort of gamifying addressing the, the climate challenge. That's a great idea. Um, I guess there's a couple of things. I mean, kudos to NatWest. I know it's a, a sort of key aim of the the CEO Alison Rose and the organization more generally to address that um, climate change. And what I really like about this, I think, is what the guys have already touched on, is it brings the sort of E element, the VSG sort of front and center, um, and it actually makes it applicable. There's some nice behavioral elements in here that can actually start to shape people's behavior. I guess just to to go a little bit broader on on sort of ESG more generally, I suppose I've been really taken with the, the promise of ESG and then probably generally fairly underwhelmed in terms of how it's been applied to now. Um, I think if you take something like this and, and as people start to engage with it, imagine the impact on something like fast fashion, which, you know, obviously does have quite a negative impact on the environment. 
One of the issues I think we've seen around ESG is the the sort of rise of ESG rating providers um, in tandem with the explosion in demand for sustainable funds. Um, I think on their own, these ESG rating providers can be okay. But the problem is, I think, um, how a company scores on ESG can vary widely depending on how each one of these ratings agencies assesses them. And we did have an instance um, earlier this year where one of those ratings agencies, MSCI, gave its second highest rating to Boohoo.com, so one of these fast fashion companies, only weeks before very poor working practices at factories were uncovered, their staff were only being paid something like £3.50 an hour. And even that, you know, the, 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 the human element, that's not even considering the impact on the environment. So... Absolutely, Ross. And, and I think on that point, uh, the difference between a ratings agency and uh, and kind of uh, the the reality is, is something we saw in the global financial crisis. You can get a AAA rating, but how good is that for? Uh, but we've definitely seen that uh, investors can play a role as well. So if I'm investing with, I think it was Ollie that made the point with RBS, are they also being good shareholders? Are they uh, sitting at the annual general shareholder meetings and advocating for some of this stuff? So it's not just giving me the rating, but it's also then then what you do um just if you are interested in this topic which i can tell we all want to jump into more um we have an episode on sustainable finance episode 466 uh which is the one uh, immediately after this in your feed so if you do check it out we uh, we dive into this a lot more uh with um, with cat from nutmeg and damien from barclays i'm, I'm going to move us to the next story I'm, i can tell that this is a subject near and dear to your heart ross but we've, we've only got so much time and there's a lot of stories to get through um story comes from the times this is Klarna standing its ground amid a number of accusations. So the Financial Conduct Authority, the city regulator, has written to BNPL, um, buy now, pay later companies such as Klarna, Clearpay, Layby, asking for meetings to assess possible credit risks to consumers as part of a probe into unregulated credit. Klarna has welcomed the investigation into its business model, claiming that it is a healthier alternative to credit cards. Klarna has more than 8.6 million customers in the UK and makes money by taking a cut from sales by fashion retailers, including ASOS, New Look, that offer Klarna at the checkout. Customers are also promised that they will not have to pay interest or late payment fees. The FCA does not regulate some of the products supplied by Klarna, and campaigners fear that these services leave vulnerable customers in debt and encourage people to live beyond their means. Layby, another BNPL company, is one of the few to conduct a hard credit check on borrowers. Uh, It's preparing a voluntary code of conduct to submit to the regulators later this month. It would commit to making sure its advertising and promotional material is not misleading, deceptive, or confusing, and would automatically opt customers out of receiving promotions if they were behind on payments. The managing director at Layby says that their product is angled to the newer generation that does not want credit cards and the BNPL products fit well into customers' weekly budgeting. Uh, who wants to jump in here first? I'm going to say Ollie. All right, go ahead, sir. Yeah, I, I'm worried about this, I have to say. Um, we've been here before. Um, I think this is a bit of a story of be a bit careful what you wish for with frictionless finance. I think, uh, look, uh, without better regulation in the um, BNPL space, then this ends up potentially doing more harm than payday lending. Uh, I, I think it's good to see the FCA have sort of started to wake up on this because I think the main problem for me is that people, I don't think, understand quite how the products work. So they hear the buy now bit, but they don't hear the pay later bit. And I think 
just the complete lack of affordability assessments that are happening is a problem. There's almost a perfect storm. It's kind of marketed in an Insta style to an Insta generation. It's free finance. It costs very little to the retailer, really, which they basically pass on to the consumer. So it spreads pretty quickly. And just consumers are borrowing money without really even thinking about whether they can afford to repay. So I think the default rates are already at 10 or 15% for a product like Klarna, which is um, a lot higher than credit cards uh, for those that are experts. And yeah, I I think it's, I'm really scared about this, actually. I have to say, I think this could be could be the start of something. But the FCA, they're relatively early and they have seen it before. So I think they sort of know what they need to probably do to get it under control. But yeah, it's a bit of a worry. We had somebody on from Klarna a few weeks ago and they were claiming their impairment rate was around 1%. Um, and typically these organizations do reclaim very, very low um, loan losses um, in their books. So it'd be interesting to see if the FCA can get to the bottom of some of that and and just kind of clarify all of this. Um, Val, I think you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to um, you know, FCA guidelines around customer communications that they have to be clear, fair and not misleading. Um, Klarna makes it you know, very clear on its website. It says, you know, your, your credit score will not be impacted by using Klarna's pay later products, even if you fail to pay on time. But then I look at, and I've just picked two headlines from, from this year and from recent months. BBC article, uh, payment firm Klarna messed up my credit score, says student. And uh, 2 million shoppers have damaged credit scores through Klarna-style buy-now-pay-later schemes. That was the, the sun, so slightly more sensationalist than, than the BBC. But, um, you know, a clear contrast there between what Klarna is saying and what, uh, at least what, what shoppers are saying and what the, uh, the news is reporting. So I think having, you know, a bit more regulation, a bit more clarity around this will hopefully be a good thing. And as, as, as Klarna has said, you know, they welcome it because it gives a degree of legitimacy to um, the product and will hopefully help to, uh, you know, stop some of the criticism that, they, that they've been having. Obviously, just like with other new industries, whether it's payday lending, whether it's peer-to-peer lending, um, you know, time will tell. Um, and normally you need at least, you know, over a decade to really give these things a proper go. So, um, you know, let's see in five or so years where these businesses are and, and um, you know, how the consumers are feeling about them. Um, but, uh, you know, I think ultimately more choice for a customer. I mean, credit cards are still there. So if they want to get a credit card, they can. Um, it's sort of, uh, I guess, buyer beware, right? Um, you've got to, uh, you know, you've got to trust that consumers can make their own decisions when it comes to, to this, as long as they're hopefully being being careful. Indeed. Uh, Ross, um, our US and Australian listeners may be familiar with Affirm and Afterpay. And this is this is something that's a bit of a global sensation at the moment. Um, and and it's, it's almost as if um, the younger generation sees uh, you know, credit cards as cigarettes and um, buy now, pay later as jewel pods. Like it's it's safer and or at least appears to be safer. But yet everybody's kind of still suspicious about the thing when you stand back and look from it. What's your takeaway from from all of this? I have so many takeaways that I don't actually really know where to start. Um, this is a rapidly growing space. You know, buy now, pay later services, the fastest growing payment method in the UK. So I don't think any of us are ever going to sit here and say that they shouldn't be regulated and held to quite rigorous standards. And I think that just benefits everybody. Um, I do agree with you, Sai, that um, the, the US is a really interesting market, you know, the contrast that Val made against credit cards, I think, is a really interesting one because in the US, when you look at the high interest end of credit cards, 
Um, that segment of the industry often makes 50% or more of its annual revenues through punitive fees and charges. Um, it's actually that, you know, that issue that, that a firm who you mentioned, Sai, were, they were born out of. They actually want a very different model. And, and their model is, is based around no fees in terms of punitive fees, like late payment fees. And the way that that can be sustained is because they have a very, very sophisticated proprietary decisioning engine. Just to pick up on the point about no um, hard credit scores, I don't necessarily see that as a negative purely because credit scores will give you a view as to how someone has typically managed credit in the past. What the sophisticated, and Val will know all about this, of course, decisioning engines do is they give you an idea around affordability, um, which I know Ollie mentioned. So um, in, in, in one sense, I would actually argue that these guys are better placed to provide a duty of care to their customers than um, some of the credit card products that are just relying on historical data because they can get a sense of um, headway, etc. There was a really good report by the Bank of International Settlements that suggested that organizations that uh, rely on credit scores have been doing less lending. Organizations that uh, rely on bank account data are doing about as much lending as, as they ever had because the credit risk is based on the person or the company in front of them rather than the segment that that company sits in. And that nuance is important. So, uh, Ross, I think you, you point to a story that's a lot more nuanced here than it appears. Val made a really good point about that there's an element of financial promotions here that I am a little little bit worried about and do people know what they're getting themselves into and do they understand it is in fact credit and um, do we want it to be so frictionless it's too frictionless uh, there's always a balance to be struck there um, but there are things that we can learn from this but uh, you know the back of my head is thinking uh, well Wonga had a really sophisticated credit scoring algorithm too and we know what happened with it with the payday lenders so let's hope this isn't that uh, it certainly appears like um, there's a lot of people involved trying for it to not be that but if if anybody asks what embedded finance is I always point to these guys as being an example finance embedded at the point of need and let's hope we can get that right rather than having it be predatory um, i'm going to move us to the next story uh chime is now worth 14.5 billion dollars of course the uh the neobank in the u.s delivers banking wholly digitally wholly through your mobile phone um of course in the latest round a series f that raised 485 million chime more than doubled its valuation from december and is worth nearly nine times more than it was just 18 months ago when it hit a one point five billion dollar valuation chime is ranked number 25 on the 2020 cnbc disruptor 50 list and will become quote ipo ready within the next 12 months the ceo chris britt said although it isn't locked into going public in that time frame uh, unlike regular banks which make money on loans and penalties like overdraft fees chime mostly makes money when customers swipe their debit so they're doing it on the interchange side which says they may have a profitability problem, but that's me editorializing. Um, let's look at that in the future. Val, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, it's super interesting, obviously, because Chime doesn't fall within a geography where they have to disclose their uh, results in the same way that, um, you know, the likes of Oak North, Starlink, um, Monzo, Revolut have had to, um, I believe. So I, I think it's still very much, a, you know, a huge question mark there in terms of their profitability. Um, which obviously, if you think about, um, you know, this year, there's been a lot, uh, certainly in the last um, you know, last quarter, there was a lot uh, of news surrounding the results of, um, you know, the challenger banks in the UK um, and, you know, how they were making money. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big valuation, but then, you know, if you think about, and I think they've got sort of 4 million customers, you think about 
some of the largest US banks, I mean, JP Morgan's got a valuation or a market cap, let's say 280 billion ish and uh, 50 million account holders. So, um, you know, over 10 times, uh, you know, 10 times that of time. And then Bank of America, 203 billion valuation, about 37 million customers. So, uh, you know, you kind of do it like that, then okay, fine, based on, on customers. But as we know, that's that's not really the metric that uh, that should be used. Um, and uh, again, I think time will tell here which uh, which model will come out um, on top. Uh, but, uh, you know, if investors are willing to kind of continue to put money in the business, even if it's if it's not profitable yet, um, with the belief that the profitability will come, then, um, you know, then let's hope they're right. Indeed. And of course, the US um, banking market is, is quite different in terms of interchange to, to the European, where interchange, uh, especially if you're using a smaller bank um, as, as your sponsor bank behind the scenes, and uh, Chime, I think, works with Bancall, uh, then they're subject to the Durban Amendment under Dodd-Frank, which means they, they get something in the region of 2 to 2.5% interchange. Now, they'll be sharing that with some of their partners behind the scenes. But that is massively different to the European interchange rate at sort of 0.3%. And, and so there's more money to go around. Um, but but will they move into cross-sell? You know, we've we've seen the stalling approach of gradually moving into cross-sell to a path to profitability. Monzo are now heading down that direction as well. Will they go that way? Uh, Ross, what, what do you think's next for these guys? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think probably that difference in the interchange, we can speculate that that's probably the same reason that the likes of the Apple card hasn't come to the UK. I think you're exactly right that um, if these big brands that are doing so well off the um the interchange revenue in, in the States do decide to come into Europe and the UK, they are going to have to find some uh, some new revenue streams. Um, I wanted to pick up on, on Val's point about the, the, the different types of models, the, the sort of traditional model versus this new neobank model. I don't actually agree with what um, the CEO, Chris Britt, um, said about nobody wants to go into bank branches, nobody wants to touch cash anymore. I don't think it's it's quite that straightforward i think in reality it's um it's a lot more nuanced and i think Bal's right and that this is a way to go this is a way to play out the other point that i wanted to just pick up on is i think we've probably now become quite desensitized to really big fintech valuations um it's important to call out that this one is a big one i think we often tend as well just to sort of write them off as vanity metrics the really interesting piece in this for me is the fact that they're saying they could be IPO ready within the next 12 months. And if they're IPOing at or around a $14.5 billion valuation, that's just extraordinary. That's massive, isn't it? Ollie, what are your thoughts? I, yeah, I think it's really interesting on the, I, t- I tend to agree there with us that I think it's not quite as binary as people don't want to go to branches or don't want to touch money. I mean, they can't, right? So like you can't go to a branch or there's been a reason in the last six months that people can't go and do those things. So, I mean, I can see why someone like Chime's valuation would only be going up. I'd rather be building it that way around, right, which is have no branches and figure out if I need them later rather than have loads with no one in and all my customers used to them and therefore not transacting anymore. So it's kind of the right way around and the right timing. Is that driving it high? I suspect so. Um, and then people have already commented on kind of what are the underlying economics of that business really like? We Maybe we won't know until they submit their papers for their IPO and then you can take a look at whether you think it's a bit fat or not. 
Indeed. And the market is buying momentum and growth. And actually, if you're a big bank right now, where's the momentum and growth in earnings coming from? Where's the growth in customers coming from? There's not a lot you can do, but let's not forget in the past decade since the financial crisis, uh, banks have done digital pretty well. There was a good stat from Cornerstone Advisors. Um, I think it was Ron Shevlin that posted it on Forbes. 69% of account openings in the US last year were entirely digital. Uh, so this is a world that has digitized quite well, um, but it was also in the um, Handels Bank and Annual Report that they intend to close around 50% of their branches. I think what we've seen in the last 10 years is nothing compared to what we might see. And actually, if you're looking at Chime, then they're that ready model built version. And sure, they have to build more products, um, but they're doing some uh, interesting things along the way. And if they can get all that infrastructure in place, then maybe they might be well set. Last word on this one, Val, before we move to uh, stories we didn't have time to cover yeah i just i i just kind of have a, a query about what is ipo ready i mean what you're ready to pay an investment bank to help you list i mean um i just don't really understand when oh, it's got to be a spac surely um there's a spac for everything these days um somebody's somebody's got to be looking at that and thinking oh my spac is hungry oh um that, that that could be the way it goes uh sort of funding jokes aside uh ross there's a whole bunch of stuff we didn't have time to cover this week um but these stories definitely deserve a shout out do you want to start us out yep absolutely um and this story comes from the financial times concerning the big four accounting firms unveiling ESG reporting standards. So we're back to ESG, which is good. Uh, The leaders of the big four accounting firms have come together in an unusual joint initiative to unveil a reporting framework for environmental, social and governance standards. If the initiative is successful, it would mark the first truly coordinated approach to ESG reporting and could prompt investors to move more money into the sector which is currently thought to total about $32 trillion under the broadest definitions of ESG. It remains to be seen how many global companies will adopt the broad new standards. The framework has 21 core metrics and 34 extended metrics, covering issues ranging from emissions to social factors such as pay and gender ratios and governance targets. The drive to create a common accounting framework has been sparked by rising frustrations among investment groups of the plethora of competing systems for measuring sustainability, which I think we talked to earlier on in the program. I think this is um, similar to the the buy now, pay later space. It's a a space that's obviously absolutely exploding. Um, It does require regulation. I think regulators in Europe are also looking at this, um, looking seriously into how they might set some more rigorous standards and set out things like we talked about earlier in the Boohoo example of the potential for greenwashing, etc. So I think um, this is good. Obviously, we'll have a look and see where we go with adoption. But I think any attempt to, um, to, to input those more rigorous standards, I think is only a good thing. Indeed, we've got a planet to save after all. Um, okay, next one is about Currency Cloud partnering with Tribe Payments to launch a new banking as a service solution. The partnership will allow the two firms to offer transparent foreign exchange costs with the international card transactions, whilst also offering access to multi-currency wallets. According to research from the European Central Bank, banks across Europe make millions each year, each year even, by overcharging SMEs for foreign exchange services, which in some cases can be 25 times higher uh, than for larger business customers. Uh, the new foreign exchange integration will be made available later this year, and the two fintechs continually intend to grow their partnership. 
good that they've got this partnership. Good that they're bringing FX and making it easier. I know Tribe does a lot around uh, making card payments a possibility for people. So uh, having pre-baked capability for FX makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm going to question if this is a banking as a service solution. Um, that term gets thrown around with quite a bit, but it's part of a banking as a service stack. Um, so I'm, I'm going to let this one slide. Um, Ross, next one. Sure. So our next story comes from TechCrunch and concerns TransferWise uh, reporting accelerating revenue growth to 70% in its March 2020 fiscal year. So TransferWise was most recently valued at $5 billion during a secondary sale worth $319 million in July of this year. Turning to future growth, TransferWise stated in a release that APAC is the country's fastest growing region. Its U.S. business was worth around a fourth of its March 2020 year's revenue. Europe was just over half for the same period. The company's ability to pay for its own growth means that it has not raised money for some time. Uh, I think, yeah, this story just shows that, you know, TransferWise and, and FinTech can make money after all. I think the fact that they've managed to move into new markets, build new revenue streams and sort of do it off uh, their own back rather than having to rely on external funding is a real boon for fintech. And I think um, good on those guys and, and sort of good luck moving forward. Not only accelerating revenue growth, 70% increase in revenue. That's massive. The importance of global remittances. Um, shout out to those guys doing a really good job. Often the untold story and the forgotten fintech. So uh, well done to everybody at TransferWise. Um, good good on them. All right. Uh, the next story is about Moro Capital making its first investment and uh, since its rebrand and leading a $26 million round in Uncapped. So Moro Capital is the most recent iteration of Santander's fintech fund, formerly known as Santander Innoventions. It's made its first investment since the rebrand with Uncapped. Uncapped is headquartered in London, provides startups with revenue-based finance from £10,000 to up to £2 million for a flat fee of 6% per day. It also specializes in revenue-based finance business. Uh, Businesses only repay the capital as they generate revenue with no repayment states, no compounding interest or personal equity guarantees. So following the investment, Uncap is planning on expanding into Spain, the home of Mauro Capital, and further bolstering its own decision-making. This revenue-based financing is probably most well-known uh, for ClearBank, not that ClearBank, ClearBank with a C at the end. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because they take in data from Stripe um, and they've taken data from your accounting package and they basically look at your payments and only take the fees if you're if you're generating more sales. And the idea being that you would take out this revenue-based financing to buy advertising, which gives you more sales. So this should, in a perfect world, pay for itself. Um, and indeed, the fact that the interest doesn't compound is is particularly powerful. Uh, so let's see if they're able to pay. So you essentially pay 6% of your revenue uh, per day, but the interest doesn't compound at 6% per day. And that's a really important nuance because I think a lot of bankers look at this and think, oh, you know, is this a, an, an unlimited um, sort of compounding interest thing? And it's not necessarily that. So this is a model that, you know, a bit like how buy now, pay later has gotten really, really big. Uh, I think we'll see a lot, lot more of this. And I'm, I'm surprised that we, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, kind of this type of financing appear as an asset class in the not too distant future. That is my uh, prediction. Alrighty. Uh, and finally, not necessarily a funny story, but it's good to see the company stand up for something. So this is about Nationwide and clapping back against racism. So uh, a person 
typically a white man, went on to Twitter to criticize an ad campaign by the UK bank Nationwide. The person who had the Twitter description patriotic alternative tweeted a screenshot of an ad showing a black man that suggested nationwide uh, through uh, was over representing a person from a BAME background and they were practicing positive discrimination towards white people. The tweet sparked debate in the comment section with some strong criticism against his views, but that's not all. Nationwide later took to Twitter to respond to the person and did so by retweeting his original tweet, the good old quote tweet. Um, Hi, we believe in a society built on mutual respect and are committed to representing the diversity of our members. Please contact us and we can help close your accounts if you do not want to be part of a diverse, inclusive society. Hashtag together against hate. Uh, any thoughts on this one, Val? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously it's uh, it's just really good to see, um, you know, to see a bank sort of standing up for, you know, for their customers and, and sort of um, speaking out against uh, this individual. Um, I think sometimes there can be too much, uh, you know, potentially too much caution and then sort of saying, oh, let's just ignore it or let's report the tweet um, and kind of a, a tendency to say, you know, let's not get caught up. We don't want to be dragged into a discussion, um, you know, in a public forum like this. Um, so I think the fact that they, you know, that uh, they've done it um, so publicly is, is such a great thing and, and really, um, you know, demonstrative of where we are uh, currently. Obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement has um, has really taken great strides this year and I think... Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's giving people the confidence, um, you know, and, and big institutions the uh, the willingness to kind of go more public with their views on this. So I think it's um, it's a really good thing, and um, yeah, I hope that guy is not just you know closed his, or nationwide is not just closed his accounts, but hopefully Twitter has hopefully uh, you know flagged him up as well, um, because uh, I'm sure this isn't the only um, kind of tweet he's made like this. Indeed. And, and Val, I think just sticking with you for a second, giving, giving you a little bit about marketing and comms, it's increasingly important that brands stand for something and are good allies to, to all communities. Uh, do you think that this is a fundamental shift in where brands would have been sort of five, 10 years ago? And does it represent a confidence in brands and to, to be able to do something like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even, you know, what we saw with, um, with Black Lives Matter, and, you know, there were so many brands who sort of um, you know, took uh, you know individual approaches and in, in sort of explaining to to uh, the public. You know, we're you know we're um, inclusive, and you know we have a, a diverse um, workforce. We have diverse customers. So um, I think you know that's something that we've definitely seen a lot more of this year, and hopefully um, it's something that's going to uh, to continue. Um, because you know, someone I guess maybe he felt like he could tweet something like this because it would sort of go unnoticed or someone would, as I said, just report the tweet and wouldn't actually bother to, to engage or respond. Um, and the fact that that has, you know, that has got a response and then been retweeted and commented on so many times, I think is just showing that um, not just institutions like this, but just people generally are a lot more, you know, a lot more empowered and confident to um, stick up for it. Indeed, indeed. And, and I think uh, the problem of racism is, is across society is, is just, um, uh, so hard to see. Do you think we will see more brands becoming allies and being better allies in, in the fight against racism? I, I think we will, Si. What, what's really nice about the way that um, Nationwide have done it is there's a sort of underlying authenticity. I think values are important, right? And Nationwide is a mutual, it is at its very core built on inclusivity. And I think the, the way that they've addressed this sort of speaks to that. And that's why I think it feels authentic. 
versus it sometimes feeling quite hollow when we've talked about the Black Lives Matter movement, but a brand jumps on the bandwagon and it doesn't quite land in the same way. I think it's probably a worthwhile call out here as well that the original tweet um, had a line in it, something to the effect of the white British pound should go elsewhere. And I think that's why in the tweet, Nationwide are offering to help this customer close their account. So I think they've actually addressed it in a very reasoned way, but fundamentally and importantly, I think a way that's really authentic to who they are and what their brand stands for. Absolutely. Ollie, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this can only be a good thing. I mean, I do a lot of work with Nationwide, so it doesn't sort of surprise me that this is both their sort of almost bravery to respond in this way but as people are saying kind of this consistency of brand and it's it's truly authentic it's exactly what they stand for um and so yeah we just need to see this is what it's all about we need everyone to respond in that way um and big brands people that work for those brands all of us um but yeah it's uh, it's not a surprise to me but refreshing nonetheless to see that that response in that way here. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's news show. We hope you've all enjoyed it. Thank you so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Ollie? Uh, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Ollie Betts, or on Twitter at Betts Ollie. Uh, how about you, Val? Yeah, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or on Twitter, Val Christensen. And if you want to find out more about Oakland, it's uh, com. Thank you so much, Ross. Yeah, uh, LinkedIn, Ross Gallagher, and at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Fantastic. As for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or find me Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please, please subscribe. Just hit that subscribe button. It's right there. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and helps others find the show too. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Clinic Insider. And you can email us podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and goodbye for now.